Hello, and welcome to the First Baptist Hanford podcast. Our primary mission at FBH is to love God, love people, and serve the world. We hope that this weekly podcast will encourage you in your daily walk with Christ as we play for you our most recent sermon audio. Let's have a listen. If you're new with us, I'm Peter Anderson. I'm the senior pastor here at, uh, at FBH, and, and man, we're just excited, excited to, uh, to have you. Uh, we're starting a brand new series called The Bible Doesn't Say That, and uh, the way that Jeff promoted it last week, it just made it sound like I was going to talk about everything that the Bible doesn't say, um, which would be a whole lot of things, actually, because the Bible's pretty clear about it, very specific things. Uh, but the Bible doesn't say that. Really, what we're going to be doing is we're going to, over the, the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at different phrases that have made their way into kind of Christian vernacular um, that aren't exactly found in Scripture. And so uh, we're going to look at those, and, and a lot of them are, are, are kind of half-truths, truths, things that we can kind of pull out of Scripture, and they, they sound kind of close to Scripture, uh, but when we really take a deep dive, we recognize, you know what, that's, uh, that's what we would call extra-biblical, as a matter of fact. So the Bible, as you are probably aware, uh, is one of the most widely known about the most widely known about books best-selling book of all time obviously Um, nearly every american home christian or not owns at least one bible almost every single home in america owns at least one bible and in homes with the bible the average number of bibles is three Okay, so think about your own house, right? And you're like, well, I got the one that I use, or at least the one that you pretend that you use that's dusty, right? But you have that one, your go-to, that you carry to church with you. Uh, and then your wife has one, probably, and, and, uh, and then maybe you've gotten a couple for your kids. You've gotten some as gifts here and there. So, like, if I had to count the number of Bibles in my house, my guess would probably be, like, between, like, the 10 to 15 range, right? Some of them, but I'm a pastor, so I'm really holy, you know, so I have a lot of Bibles. Um, I was just telling you, we're going to close with that. I know. Um, um, but, but I mean, Bibles are all over the place. Uh, 30 to 40% of Americans actually only read uh, something in the Bible during the week. So it's only 30, 40% of people read something from the Bible during the week, regardless of the fact that so many people actually have Bibles at their fingertips. And so what we're going to do is we're going we're gonna to do a little quiz to start off this morning. And I'm going to give you a list of phrases, and I want you to turn to the person next to you, and I want you to answer which of the phrases that we're going to read through in just a second are actually found in Scripture. So we're going to—I I don't need audible answers from you to me, but— Back and forth, you guys can uh, can decide who's paying for lunch today. Um, but uh, so so here's the list, so, and, and I'll walk through them. The first one is cleanliness is next to godliness, and it's a little small, but cleanliness is next to godliness. My dad would say this to me a lot. I don't know what that says about me, but my dad would say that to me a lot. Uh, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Right. Uh, third one, God moves in mysterious ways. Fourth one, a nagging spouse is like the drip, drip, drip of a leaky faucet. You can't turn it off and you can't get away from it. And of course, five, God helps those who help themselves. So take just a second. I want you to discuss those with the person next to you and you guys decide which, uh, how many of those 
are found in Scripture. Okay, all right. So this is what I'm going to do. Raise your hand if you think... If you think zero of those are found in scripture, I want a hand raised. Okay, we got a couple zeros. How about some ones? Who are the ones in the room? Okay, twos in the room, threes in the room, fours in the room, fives in the room. All right, good, good. I have to have a conversation with one person I think who's on my staff. But outside of that, we're okay. Um, actually, we, there, there's two that, that are found in Scripture. The first one is, yeah, you twos. Yeah, that's right. Someone can buy your lunch today. The first one is, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, right? We have Paul who talks about that. And then actually, my favorite is number four, the fourth one. A nagging spouse, right? Now, to be fair, there's some liberties there. It's from the Message Translation Bible. And so it's a little bit probably funnier than a literal translation there. Um, but, but it's true. Those two are in the Bible. Numbers 1, 3, and 5, the, the popular sentiments, they don't come from the Bible. And today we're actually getting an opportunity to talk about the last one, that God helps those who help themselves. And if you thought that that was one that was in Scripture, uh, you're actually in the majority of people in America. Uh, Barna, they did, a, uh, they did a survey in the year 2000 and found that 75%, and we have a slide for this, 75% percent of Americans and 40 percent of Christians believe this is a truth that's found in the Bible. 75 percent of Americans and 40 percent of Christians think that this is found in the Bible. And a more recent survey says that 68 percent of Christians believe this statement is in the Bible, but it wasn't from as reputable of a source. Okay, so all the way up, like Christians think, oh yeah, that's scripture 100 percent. Right? Because we've ju- it's just part of our culture. It's part of our Christian culture that we've heard it. The word God is in it. And it sounds kind of biblical, like something that we would find in a proverb or something like that. And so because of that, yeah, absolutely. That's totally scripture. I'm going to write that one down. But the real question then is, is then where did the idea originate? Because if it's crept into our Christian culture, we need to figure out where it comes from. So historians actually can trace the idea back to one of Aesop's fables. It's from uh, Hercules and the Wagoneer, and dates back uh, to the first century. And then a, uh, a French author and an English philosopher, they advanced the thought through the 17th century, and it was made famous in America after being published in Poor Richard's Almanac, something that was written by Benjamin Franklin in 1757. Now, an interesting note about that is Benjamin Franklin wasn't known as being a Christian man. So this thing that we hang our hat on, as some, as some people would assume, is scripture. We're hanging our hat on the philosophy of a guy who really has a pretty terrible reputation, especially when it comes to womanizing, right? And so that's really where we're finding our scripture here is from Ben, good old Ben Franklin. Um, so while the statement does include an element of biblical truth, and we're going to talk a little bit about that in a second, it also really misses the point. It really misses the point. You know, when I was younger, I was an intern at a church. It was a church in Merced. I was 19 and 20 years old while I was working there. Um, and we, it was near downtown, so we would walk downtown, get coffee. Cold Stone was down there. The movie theater was down there and that sort of thing. And so we walked downtown. I was walking with my boss. And um, 
I remember us walking by uh, a homeless person. A homeless person had a sign out, and they were asking for, you know, anything helps. And I don't remember exactly what the sign said, but they're asking for money. And um, my boss just walked by, ignored him, and I was like, okay, apparently I need to ignore him too, right? And so we're, we keep walking, and then that kind of spurred on a conversation between uh, myself and my boss. And I thought to myself, hey, when do you, when do you give to people that are homeless or people who are in need and that sort of thing. And the boss was like, you know what? God helps those who help themselves. And I was like, huh, uh, I mean, okay. You're a pastor, right? Okay. Like, uh, and so I went back, like I nodded my head because I'm a, I'm, I'm a good worker, right? And I'm like, yeah, okay, boss, don't fire me, you know, whatever. Um, and I went back and I thought to myself, you know, I don't, I don't even think that's biblical. Like, I don't think that's found in scripture. And I had read through the Bible at that point, to be fair. Maybe it was like in Numbers or Kings, which aren't exactly page turners or anything like that. And I'm like, okay, maybe God snuck it in there under my nose and I didn't know about it. But really, I, I, like, I was just overall confused. And the partial statement, the partial truth of this statement is expressed by the, by the Apostle Paul in the book of, uh, of, of the, to the Thessalonian Christians. It's a congregation that Paul actually established as one of his own in a missionary journey that he had. He told them about Jesus and that a new life, uh, a new life God offers us through faith in Christ. He told them that Jesus would return perhaps very soon. And so as he told them that, it seems that some of these Christians took him very literally about Christ coming back very soon. And so really what some of them did, they sold their property, they quit their jobs, and they just simply waited for Jesus to come back. That's all they did. They're like, well, if Jesus is coming back anyway, forget it. I'm going to kick up my feet and wait. There is no point in doing all of these things that I'm doing, right? You see this oftentimes with people who are doomsdayers who are like, oh, the world is going to end on this date. And they quit their job. They sell their property. They're giving away their money because it's like, it doesn't matter, the world's going to end. It's going to be all done. You guys remember the Mayan calendar, the ending of the Mayan, Mayan calendar in 2012, and the world was going to end then? Let me tell you something, okay? If, if somebody tells you the world is going to end on a specific date, bet on the fact that it's not going to end on that date, okay? You can, you can, you can buy somebody else lunch. In that. I've encouraged you guys to gamble two times this morning already, so we're really knocking it out of the park. <laughs> But it seems, though, that some of these Christians took him incredibly literally and thought, you know what? Jesus is going to come back. So they sold all their stuff. And in the meantime, they were eating other people's food. They were, they were gossiping and stirring up trouble. And in the context, Paul gave them this advice. It's 2 Thessalonians 3, 10 to 12. And it's not on the screen. So if you have your books, it's in 2 or your books, your Bible, it's in 2 Thessalonians 3. It says, for even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. The one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. We hear that some among you are idle and disruptive, and they're not busy. They're busy bodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the food that they eat. You know, Paul's idea, idea still applies today. This message, in essence, was pray and work. Pray and and work. And, and he didn't teach that trusting Jesus means we pray and then God just simply takes care of everything. Our faith is meant to move us to act even as we trust God. It's a both and. It's not simply, hey, I'm going to throw my hands up at the entire situation and just wait for God to take care of it. Right? I, there, there's a, a story about a couple in a church who, uh, who decided they were going to sell their house. 
and they really felt like God was telling, hey, you need to sell your house and you need, to, you need to downsize whatever. And so they're like, all right, we're gonna put our house up for sale. And so they put their house up for sale and they completely and totally overshot their asking price, right? So they're, they're asking for this house $200,000 more than it's worth. And the realtor's like, look, you're not gonna get any nibbles on this thing. It's not gonna happen. Nobody's gonna buy it. And so they're like, no, we trust God. We trust God. We trust God. And so realtor's like, all right, fine. So a month goes by, two months go by, realtor comes back, hey, uh, you guys are just, you're overpriced, no one's gonna buy it. No, we trust God in this, he's gonna be able to, to take care of this. Month goes by, month goes by, and finally they're getting frustrated, right? And so when people are frustrated, they love to come and talk to their pastor about it, and so they came and they talked to their pastor about it, they're like, hey, pastor, what do you think we should do here? You know, God, we feel like we're supposed to sell this house, but God hasn't brought anybody forth. And he was like, well, have you listened to your realtor? He's like, what? Well, we trust God. Yeah, you should probably trust the fact that God is gonna even send people into your life to be able to tell you when something is a good decision and when something is a bad decision, right? So hey, listen to your realtor. Shocker, they listen to their realtor, lower the price, a couple days later, they sell their house. Man, crazy what it looks like when we actually trust God and do the work and do the things that it is that we're supposed to do. Our faith is meant to move us to act even as we trust God. So God helps those who help themselves is, is partially true. Um, however, it's fundamentally unbiblical in some really important ways. One is this, God helps those who help themselves is sometimes used by Christians in an effort to avoid the biblical mandate to help other people and to love our neighbors. It's kind of one of those things that we throw out in the same way that my boss did at that time. He just kind of threw it out so he didn't have to worry about the problem. So in his mind, his conscience was clear. It simply stated, hey, I don't need, I don't need to worry about them because God will help them when they decide to help themselves. So then we can keep walking with a clear conscience and recognize the fact that, hey, I'm good. I don't have to worry about this anymore. The reality is, though, there are some people who simply can't help themselves. These are people who are trapped in poverty oftentimes or struggling financially, caught in circumstances that leave them frustrated or dealing with past mistakes or the consequences of bad choices. And talk about things that can just put a stranglehold on people, debt, finances, things like that. Man, I saw a really cool story this week as I was scrolling through Facebook and that sort of thing. And uh, the story was a church um, paid off $2.2 million worth of debt for their community, worth of medical debt, excuse me, for their community to help get people out of that cycle of poverty. And that's incredibly phenomenal and people are like, ah, oh, warm, fuzzy feeling and all that stuff. But that church could have just, just have simply said, you know what? God helps those who help themselves. We're gonna go on our way. We're gonna continue to do our Easter services and hope people show up to our front door. But they chose not to. They chose to actually listen to the biblical mandate that we have to love other people. Sometimes people are in a hole so deep that they can't climb out without someone simply helping them. In John, there's a huge crowd of people followed by Jesus, right? And it's, it's in response to his healing miracles. So it's, obviously there's this faith healer. People are going to try to get to him. And they were in the wilderness and it came time to eat. And Jesus asked his disciples to go get them, go get food. 
but feeding them would cost at least six months wages. Finally, Andrew, he found a boy with a lunch, five loaves, two fishes. It was all the food that they had. Then Jesus took what they had. He gave thanks and the disciples gave everyone something to eat. And when the leftovers were gathered back up, they had 12 baskets of food. Right, oftentimes we, uh, we, tell, we, we look at this story and try to figure out how Jesus did it. Like, what did it look like? Did, like, all of a sudden, like, someone's hands were out and a piece of bread just appeared? Or did the baskets fill up from the bottom? And so there was, like, it was, like, just a bottomless thing, like a ball pit that you just keep going down to the bottom to, right? Like, how did this actually work? But that simply misses the point. Jesus took what this little boy shared and used it to help many, many other people. Actually, in the, in the Old Testament, uh, the book of Leviticus, God instructed the people not to harvest all of their crops. They were not to use it for themselves. They weren't to sell it. There were some of the crop along the edges of the field so the poor and the immigrants could have something to eat. It was a commandment of compassion and charity that helped people to recognize that the crops and the fields ultimately didn't belong to them. They belonged to God. Over and over in the Bible, God calls us to help those who cannot help themselves. The book of James actually tells us that James 1.27, one of the most convicting verses in all of scripture, where it says, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress. Read that first part again. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is to take care of those people who can't take care of themselves. That's what pure and faultless religion is. The book of Proverbs piles on. Proverbs 21, 13, whoever shuts their ears to the cry of the poor will also cry out and not be answered. There's another one in Proverbs 22, 9, the generous will themselves be blessed for they share their food with the poor. In his parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10, and his parable of the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25, Jesus tells us that God judges us not only by our faith, but by how our faith led us to act compassionately for the poor and for the needy. The truth of scripture is that God helps those who cannot help themselves. God helps those who cannot help themselves. And in my experience, God most often meets the needs of hurting and struggling people by acting through other Christians, by acting through other followers of Christ. So when the pastor in that story about the couple who wanted more money for their house than they were going to get said, hey, you should listen to your realtor, that's oftentimes how God works through the acts of other people, through the other followers in their life. But if we have no compassion or concern for those in need, then we've missed an essential part of the gospel. There's another way in which God helps those who help themselves. And it, uh, it, that, that, excuse me, there's another way in which God helps those who help themselves doesn't capture God's heart. And I'm thankful for this. Believing this kind of half-truth causes us to think that to get God to love us, we have to work incredibly hard. For those of you who've traveled with us uh, through the book of Ecclesiastes, 
right? We know that, man, everything, we're just, we're just going to toil under the sun until, until God is ready for us. We're just going to toil under the sun until God is ready for us. And so we oftentimes think to ourselves, man, all I got to do is work and work and work, and then God's going to call me home. That's a half truth. We think we need to do more good things than we do bad to earn God's favor. God helps those that help themselves contradicts really the entire counsel of scripture. It's the whole story of the Bible. Let me explain it real quick. The Bible is broken up into different sections, right? We have the Old Testament, we have the New Testament. If you're new to faith, Christianity 101. Your Bible, Old Testament, New Testament. Um, The Old Testament's got 39 books, New Testament has 27. Uh, There are a total of 1,189 chapters in the Bible. The Bible covers the history from the creation of the world up to about 40 to 50 years after the crucifixion in Christ and even speaks about the end of the world as well, right? How everything is going to end. So without getting into debate about how long creation took or anything like that, it covers, the Bible covers an extremely long period of time. There's actually more than than 3,000 different people mentioned by name in the Bible, over 3,000 people. And the setting ranges throughout the Middle East and North Africa up into Europe. There's also the fact that the Bible was written by numerous different people, actually 40 plus authors, people think, that wrote the Bible, that had a hand in writing the books of the Bible. But what many people don't realize that even with so many characters and covering so much physical ground and such a long time and written by so many different people, the Bible is a single coherent story. A thread that starts at creation and ends in Revelation. One single coherent story. It's the story of redemption of mankind. If you start from the beginning of Genesis, you read about the creation story in Genesis 1 and 2, right? And that's where people get in debate about, well, we have an old earth, we have a new earth, right? And you guys can debate that until, you know, revelation happens. I don't care. We're here and we have a job to do. Then in chapter 3 of Genesis, you read about the fall. You read about the fact that Adam and Eve sinned and fell out of communion with God, community with God. And from that point on, the rest of the Bible is about man's redemption. It's about God's plan to restore mankind to a relationship with him. And the whole point of that story is that we can't do it on our own. We can't save ourselves. God gave the Israelites the law not to restore the relationship, but to show them that they could never be good enough. If you've read through Leviticus, if you've read through Levitical law, you know there is no possible way that anybody could uphold that law perfectly. But God gave them a way. Hey, this is the way to righteousness. You just follow this law and you can do it. No one could do it. It was the purpose of the entire law. And if God helps those who help themselves, then no one would ever get any help. Because the whole story of the Bible points out the fact that we can't help ourselves. God is the one that has to help us. He is the one that saves us from our sins. Matthew 6, 25 to 34, it says this. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food? And the body more than clothes? 
Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all of these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Verse 33. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. So when I say that we can't help ourselves, that doesn't mean you throw your hands up into the air and say, forget about it. That doesn't mean that you should act like the church in Thessalonica and say, you know what? Jesus is coming back pretty soon. I'm gonna sell all my stuff and I'm gonna live in my parents' basement. It's not what scripture is saying. By the way, if you live in your parents' basement, that's cool. Friend me on Facebook. I'm sure you're on your computer a lot. Um, Yeah, you guys got that one. But I'm not saying you just throw your hands up in the air. I'm saying we need to be kind. I'm saying we need to go to church. I'm saying we need to give and help so that God will. I'm not saying that we should give and do all those things so God is simply going to overlook our sins. But the heart of the gospel message is that God helps us because we can't help ourselves. I think of Paul's words in Romans 5, 6, and this is New American Standard Translation. It says, for while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Going back to Matthew 6, and it just shows how much Jesus loves us, how much God loves us. He's like, look, and if you've walked up to our building, and this is my favorite time of year around our building because the roses outside are exploding right now, okay? And so I love walking in um, after I take my, my sinus medication, um, but I love walking in, right, and just being like, this is incredible. This is beautiful. Like, God brought these things forth, and, and, and we can look at that, and then we look at ourselves, and we look at the state of ourselves, and we look at the state of our world, and we're like, man, God, where are you? Like, how much more does God care about mankind and the redemption of mankind than he cares about a silly little flower outside? Before we were aware of God or our need, God was already there. God was taking the initiative. We don't act to get God's attention. God has been trying to get our attention and inviting us to respond to God's gift of grace. So the entire Bible is about. The idea of grace is actually central to the Christian message. So for those of you who are new with us or new to faith, this is what the Christian message is all about. It's God's grace that is abounding. Grace is the undeserved work of God in our lives. Simply speaking, we don't deserve it. It's not something we earn. It's not something we buy. It's not something we work for. We cannot help ourselves into grace. God offers it. We can only accept it. The truth is, is that when we are helpless, 
only God can help us. When we are helpless, only God can help us. And he helps us through grace. Only God can make us clean. Only God can make us whole. Only God can give us a new life and a new purpose. We can't. Only God can. Man, today you may feel helpless. You may feel hopeless. Your marriage may need saving or you might be in the grip of addiction of some sort. I don't know where you are this morning. You might feel lost or ashamed, but God is here. God is present in our lives, ready to just open, like reaching out to you in grace, offering to help you, even when you cannot help yourself. God simply helps. Our modern culture idolizes this idea of self-sufficiency. And I think this is really where the idea came from. The fact that good old Ben Franklin was the one who really brought this forth into American culture really makes sense to me. Because of the fact that, man, it's the American dream. And you gotta pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You wanna make something of yourself? Go do it. This is America, land of opportunity. Where once upon a time, gold was just sitting out on the hills. Man, you do it, you go. And our culture idolizes that. It idolizes being able to do it on our own. Everyone needs to take care of ourselves. Man, we gotta look out for number one. We gotta be able to do it on our own. Focus on our own needs before anyone else's needs. Man, look at the phenomenon of reality TV. Anybody, Survivor fans? I know that show's a little outdated. So that's okay. It was like when I was in high school, it came out and it's still going strong. I've never completed an entire season. So I hope what I say right now is true. But in Survivor, they start out as teams, right? And they're teams, but all the while behind the scenes in Survivor, they are all jockeying and lobbying for a position for them to be the only one standing at the end. Because we look out for number one. Our focus, though, should be on expanding the kingdom of God, on sharing the gospel with other people so that they can share in the promises that go along with it. It's not about us. It's not about you. And can I just for a second make a plug here for how important it is for us to be in community with one another? That we recognize the, the, the futility of, of just like the selfishness that we have? They were like, no, I can take care of it. I can do it. I can do it. And if you're not allowing other people to speak into your life, if you're not allowing other people to say, hey, let me come alongside of you. Let me celebrate this with you. Or I know you're hurting right now. I know your marriage is, is, is in trouble right now. How can I, can I make you food? Like, can I do something as simple as let me bring you a meal? Can I sit down and have coffee with you and just let let you emotionally vomit all over me and just say, I'm so sorry, and then pray for you? You know how important that community is? It's one of the most, life change happens in the midst of community. And you're gonna hear this again as we get nearer and nearer to our big small group launch that we got going on in August. But let me tell you, I don't know where I would be if I didn't have a small group and a consistent small group. 
My kids know how important community is because my wife and I have sought out a community of believers, a small community of believers over and over and over again, wherever it is that we have found ourselves in marriage. Why? Because life change happens in the midst of community because we cannot do it on our own. You cannot do it on your own. It is what the body of Christ is for. Engage. Are we a community on a Sunday morning? Absolutely we're a community on a Sunday morning. You gonna talk about your marriages as people are shaking your hands as you're walking in? Probably not. Engage in that community, because we can't do it on our own. And I'm not saying that, that when you get into a small group or anything like that, all your problems are gonna be taken care of, because even in the midst of the small group, collectively, you guys can't do it on your own. That's why I say community, man, you can find community at a baseball field, you can find a community in a bar, you can find a community at a sewing class on a Tuesday night, whatever it is, you can find community, but there is a difference between a community who gathers to do a thing and a community that gathers to pray for each other, to love each other, to dig into the word of God with one another. There's a difference between those two things because that community recognizes that they can't do it on their own. They need God because God simply helps. This isn't saying that you you don't have to work for a living. You don't have to earn daily necessities. God isn't just gonna give you what you want. In fact, Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians, he says, in fact, when we were with you, this is what we commanded you. If anyone is willing to work, he should not eat or isn't willing to work, he should not eat. This passage uh, from Matthew that we read before isn't permission to be lazy, but it does command us to shift our focus. It commands us not to focus on ourselves. It commands us not to simply help ourselves, but to focus on the kingdom of God. So how do we do that, though? How do we place our focus in the kingdom of God instead of following the modern impulse to focus on ourselves? Man, we have to set priorities in our lives. And I'm sure you guys all have your list of priorities that you have. And if someone said, hey, what would you say are your priorities in your life? And you would probably list them off. And I'm not saying some of our priorities are different than other people's priorities. But most, most people who are Christian would probably say, you know what? My first priority is God. And then after God is my family. And then my friends. And then I'm super holy and really righteous. And so I'm at the very bottom of that list. <laughs> Right, and so those are my kind of my order of priorities and, and that sort of thing. But I think ultimately, or, like order can change. Your list of priorities can and probably should change depending on the circumstances of your life. You know, I can't always tell you to place family in front of yourselves. What if, what if you're walking through an incredibly difficult health crisis in your life? You found out you have cancer. And all of a sudden, man, things get real and you need to focus on you so for the long-term benefit of your family then. Right, you need to focus on you and your family's not gonna fault you for doing your best to get better or anything like that. They just wanna love you well. And hey, you focus on, on getting better. But that's a decision that you and your family, you gotta make on a case-by-case basis. But I can say that God and his kingdom need to always be our priority. Notice how I said that, they need to be our priority. He needs to be our priority. Not your first priority, not your second priority, not your third priority. God needs to be your priority. And so when you're writing that list of things, man, put family one, put friends two, put you three, put your church four, whatever it is that that is. 
But you need to recognize that God should not be on that list. God should be that list. God should be in the midst of all of those things. The priority for your family should be God. The priority for your friends should be God. The priority for your church should be God. It's not the top of your list. God is your list. So I want to ask again, man, what, where is God on that list of priorities? Where is God on that list of priorities? And if he's a number, you got it wrong. Because God's not a check mark. He's not something that you got to keep first or anything like that. He is it. His kingdom is it. That is it. There's a, uh, there's a guy uh, by the name of John Wanamaker. He, uh, he lived in the, in, the 19, the, in the late 19th century. He lived in the late 19th century. It was one, two centuries, whatever. Math. Um, history. I don't know. But he opened a department store in Philadelphia, right? He opens this department store. And within just a few years, that store had become one of the most successful businesses in the entire country. He's known for for pioneering a whole lot of things in the retail and advertising worlds. He's, he's credited with the creation of the price tag and the money back guarantee, which we all love as Americans. He provided his employees with free medical care, free education and recreational facilities, pensions and profit sharing plans long before they were a part of any standard business practice. He simply did it out of the kindness of his heart. But operating his store wasn't Wanamaker's only responsibility. He was also a postmaster general of the United States. And he served as superintendent for what was at that time the largest Sunday school in the world at Bethany Presbyterian Church. And when someone asked him how he could do all of these various positions at once, and he did hold all of these things at once, he explained, early in life I read, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Matthew six thirty three. The Sunday school is my business. All the rest are just things. One evidence of Wanamaker's desire to keep the Lord's work first in his life, that, that, that God was going to be in the midst of everything in his life, was a specially constructed, soundproof room in his store. And every single day, he spent 30 minutes in prayer in his store by himself before anybody else showed up. Why? So he could seek first the kingdom of God and everything else at that point would be added unto him. Then the question is, do you seek his kingdom first? Or do you help yourself? Imagine what it would look like if, if the church decided to not make God an action item to check off, but if God was just a priority amid all of our action items. What I mean by that is God, like I said, shouldn't be at the top of your list. He should be your list. And so when you go to the store to cross off that list, you type A's who write a list, and at the top of the list, you write write list so you can check something off right away. You people, right? 
going to the store is on that list. Oh, what do you got to do? I got to go to the store. Great. So you go to the store and you're at the checkout line and someone's three bucks short. Man, hey, just, hey, I'll take care of the $3. Don't worry about it. You throw it down. They go on your way. Oh, thank you so much. Three bucks is dropping the bucket. But guess what? All of a sudden you have made an impact for those people. You have simply loved them and you've loved them well. And who knows, maybe that, maybe that turns into a conversation. We don't know. But the truth is that that is a kingdom moment. That is an appointment that God has for you. We need to actively seek God first and seek him in all we do. Church, if we started seeking God first and recognized that everything else after seeking him would be added unto us, we would be a much more humble group of people. A group of people that wasn't self-serving, but was open-handed. A group of people that didn't keep record of wrongs. One that is kind. A group of people that that doesn't envy. We'd be a group of people who rejoiced in truth and just loved people well. Who wouldn't want to be a part of that? Because it doesn't start with God. It doesn't start there. It simply is there. The entirety of our lives is God. So God doesn't help people who help themselves. God simply helps people because we can't. And the expression of that oftentimes is through his followers. The question isn't, is God your main priority? It's, is God in all of your priorities? Let's pray, church. Father, we're thankful for you and your son. And God, even as we celebrate the resurrection last weekend, and that we recognize that, man, we can't do it apart from you. We can't, there, there's nothing that we can do to help ourselves. We are depraved. We're sinful creatures. Romans is very clear about that, that all of us have fallen short of the glory of God, of your glory. And so God, I pray that, man, if there are people in here today with heads still bowed and eyes still closed, who don't yet know you, that they would just pray along with me. We do the ABCs here at First Baptist at A that, and just say, God, I admit I'm a sinner in need of a savior. That I can't help myself, God. I've tried, I don't know what else to do. So God, I'm a sinner in need of a savior. And B, I, I believe that you sent your son to the cross to die on my behalf. And save me from that sin that I consistently go back to. And see that we would, we would choose to follow you every single day of our lives. And Father, you know and we know that that's where the rubber meets the road. The choosing to follow you every single day. God, we love you. We're thankful for you. We're thankful for your son. It's in his precious name we pray. Thank you for listening to the FBH podcast. We hope that you enjoyed this week's sermon. Music was by the band Broke for Free, 
And if you would like more information about our church, feel free to check out fbhanford.org. That's fbhanford.org. Thank you again, and we'll see you next week.